And there is a homework assignment due Tuesday. I made it shorter so that you can spend less time doing the homework and more time preparing for the midterm. OK, um, so we're going to talk more about interference of light. We've talked about interference of light already. Um, chapter 5, as I mentioned, was superposition. Superposition means you have multiple waves that are interfering. So really, you can't talk about superposition without talking about interference. And we introduced some concepts like interference patterns and constructive and destructive interference. And we did it mostly for a couple special examples. And today, we're going to generalize and um, describe a very general situation where you have two beams interfering. So if you have two waves that overlap, and that can be described by E1 and E2, and those waves can be functions of space and time. And they might have different frequencies. They might have different um, directions of propagation. They could even have different polarization states. But the sum of those two waves is just the linear sum of those two vectors at any point in space and time, evaluated at uh, whatever point. You, know, you evaluate this. If you evaluate each of these at some particular space point and some particular uh, point in time, you get the total at that location and at that time. But we don't detect electric fields. We detect irradiance, or power per unit area. And so it'll be useful for us to determine the total irradiance when two individual fields are added. And so that total irradiance is just epsilon naught c times total field squared. So that total field squared, if we take the time average times epsilon naught c, that gives us the, the irradiance. So these brackets represent time averaging. Okay, and we'll define that a little more mathematically in a moment. So this total field, if it's the sum of two individual fields, we can write this expression. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to write this all out on the board just so we can see each step. We can write the total field as the sum of two individual fields. And if we square that, that gives us a quantity which is proportional to the irradiance. Constant of proportionality is epsilon naught c. And I say square it, but really it's the dot product of this vector with this vector. Now, these vectors are the same, right? So their dot product is the same. It's just squaring the magnitude. But these are vectors, so you can't square a vector. 
you can square its magnitude, or you can take the dot product of the vector with itself. Now, we can multiply through the different terms here. We have an E1 dotted with an E1. And so clearly, that's just going to be the magnitude of E1 squared. We have an E2 dotted with an E2. So that's going to be the magnitude of vector E2 squared. And then we have an E1 dotted with E2 and an E2 dotted with an E1. And so we can write the term inside of this, these brackets like this. Now, this is just the magnitude of a vector. Um, it is independent of the magnitude of this other vector. And so when we do the time average, we can separate out this term, which is independent from this term. into their own independent time averages. Now, if this wave E1 of RT, if this is a harmonic wave, if it's a sinusoidally oscillating wave, the time average of the wave squared, or the amplitude squared, is going to be 1 half. Right? If it's a sinusoidal wave and you average sine squared over a full cycle, you get an average of 1 half. And so we typically see irradiances written We've averaged over the time. You'll typically see irradiances written like this, 1 half epsilon naught c times the magnitude of the, the field squared. This 1 half comes from the time average. And then we've removed the time dependence on the wave because we've averaged over that time. And I'm not going to do the time average yet on this cross product because while these fields were sinusoidally varying in time at a frequency which is very high, optical frequencies, this dot product 
may or may not be sinusoidally varying at optical frequencies. Okay, we'll see that in a minute. So anyhow, this term here I'll identify as I1. It's the irradiance that would be produced by field 1. This term then we'll call I2. And then this uh, cross term requires there be both field 1 and field 2. It doesn't exist if only one of them is present. So that's the term that comes from the interference. And we'll call that the interference term, or I sub 1, 2. And so anytime you have two waves interfering, there's an irradiance that comes from each individual wave, and then a contribution that comes from their, the cross product. And so what we'll do is we'll evaluate this expression and come up with a, uh, a form for this cross term that will let us uh, make some generalizations about what, what happens when you have the interference of two arbitrary waves. Well, you can have nodes in the interference pattern where there's no oscillation in the... We'll, we'll get to the, the pattern of this in a minute. So if you save your question until we talk about the spatial distribution of the irradiance, it'll be more relevant. Okay, so let's look at this interference term. Um, we need to be able to evaluate the time average of the product of two waves. And so... What that time averaging means, it means you take the expression for the two waves multiplied together, you average them. So average means you add up for a length of time, which is generally large, large compared to an optical cycle. So that's this integral. So it's going to average these waves from from time t, from now until one period later, one uh, integration time later, and then we divide by the length of time over which we averaged. It's getting the average value of the functions over the time interval, capital T. So that's how you do it if these functions are written as a function of time. If we express them as a phasor, E1 and E2, if we express both of those as phasors, then we can use a shortcut and say that this time average is equal to one-half the product of one phasor and the other is complex conjugate. And we'll see that in a moment. We'll also see that if these two waves are incoherent, then when we average their product over some length of time, it averages to zero. So we'll talk more formally about coherence today as well. OK, so first let's show that two fields, when time averaged, can be expressed in phasor notation as one half the product of one phasor times the complex conjugate of the other. Okay, this, if I ignore that r right there, this is the phasor that represents the time average. That r 
means the real part. And so the real part of this phasor is the, the uh, actual function. OK, so let's show this. Um, E1 of t dot E2 of t. If I express E1 of t as e to the i omega t plus e to the minus i omega t over 2, all times E1 naught. That's equivalent to saying this is E1 naught times cosine omega t. And that's what lets me relate my functions to my phasor notation. So I'll substitute in these expressions for E1 and E2. So I've pulled out all the, the uh, prefactors. And then I've got my exponential terms being multiplied. Um, I have to be careful. Actually, I did something incorrectly here, although it's not really going to. Uh, oh, no, that's fine. If I multiply this by this, I have an e to the i omega 1 plus omega 2 t. Then this times this gives me e to the i omega 1 minus omega 2 t. Then I have this term times this term, which is e to the minus i omega 1 minus omega 2t. And then the last two terms, e to the minus i omega 1 plus omega 2t. Yeah, that's, and that's what I was going to say. I did something incorrectly. But here, actually, what I'm doing is just plugging in these expressions in here. These aren't themselves phasers. These aren't actually complex numbers, because the way I've written this, e to the i omega 1t would be the phasor. Or e1 naught times e to the i omega 1t would be the phasor that represents e1 of t. But I haven't plugged that in. I've plugged in the full expression. So 
what I've written here is literally equal to this. Um, and then what I'm going to show is that we can extract, we can relate this expression to the phasor E1 times the phasor E2 star. Okay, so I'm going to take these two terms, and I'm going to take and bring in a factor of 2. And now this term plus this term all over 2 gives me um, cosine and then likewise this term plus this term also gives me a cosine. Now these factors in front are not time dependent. I can pull them out of the time average. These two factors, or these two terms, I can time average independently. So what is the time average of this averaged over a time which is long compared to an optical cycle? It's zero because it's oscillating at, a, at optical frequencies, essentially um, at a higher frequency than either of the component waves. So it's oscillating very rapidly, and the time average will average over many, many uh, periods. So that will average to zero. This one, however, oscillates at a frequency which is less than either of the individual components. And in fact, if omega 1 equals omega 2, this could be time independent. So this one, the time average won't be 0. And if its oscillation is slow, so if the time average, see if the frequencies, Obey this relationship. Yes. Right. So if the frequencies are close together compared to the time over which we average, then this expression is essentially going to be not changing over the time in which we're averaging. 
So we can replace this time average with the instantaneous velocity, or the instantaneous value of the function. So it just comes out of the expression. This is the result for the time average. Okay, so that didn't exactly show this expression. That evaluated this expression. Um, I could evaluate the expression again using this form and show that I get the same result. Yes? Then you don't see, then this term averages to zero. So as the frequencies get further and further apart, and this condition is less and less true, this term goes from being the instantaneous value to uh, approaching 0. So it becomes some fraction of the instantaneous value. Okay, and we'll see. I can, I can do a little demonstration that shows um, what that why that would look like that. Um, let me see if I have. I don't have the slide in today's lecture that will let me show that. Um, So trying to think of a good example, a physical example I can do to show that. Um, this interference. If you forget about the time average for a moment, if you look, talk about the instantaneous uh, intensity, that would be what you'd get if you didn't have the time average. Now your eyes do a time average when you see things. If you have a camera, that does a time average. Everything does a time average um, because no detectors can, de can respond at optical frequencies. Okay, so these terms over here that oscillate at optical frequencies are always going to average out and you're never going to see them. Essentially what it's like, it's like blurring. If you, have, if you take a photograph of something that's moving very fast, it gets blurred and you can't see the details. Right? That's essentially what's happening. Your eye is like a camera and there's some, some feature that's moving very rapidly and so it gets blurred out. If it's not moving as rapidly, then it goes from being completely blurred out to being completely, in, uh, completely resolved and, and uh, full detail. And if something's moving a little bit, right, you can resolve some of the detail, but it gets partially blurred out. Okay, and that's what would happen as omega 1 and omega 2 
if they're equal, then regardless of how long you average, um, this time average will equal the instantaneous value. And this term will survive the time average. But as the frequency difference is 1 over that, that's the time for the interference term, this term, to cycle through one complete uh, oscillation. If you're integrating over the length of time it takes this term to cycle through an oscillation, then you're going to integrate part of the time when this term is positive, part of the time when it's negative. And if the integration time is a fraction of a full cycle, then the magnitude of this term gets reduced. Okay, so if you were to plot this value as it cycles through one complete cycle, this time is uh, 2 pi over omega 1 minus omega 2. If you integrate for that length of time or longer, it's essentially going to average out to 0. If you integrate over a very short period of time, you're always going to get the instantaneous value of the function. And if you integrate over some significant fraction of it, then as you plot the uh, magnitude as a function of tau, it would look like a sinc squared. Sine of tau over omega 1 minus omega 2 over tau over omega 1 minus omega 2. Um, that's a little bit beyond where we're, what I'm trying to discuss today, though. Okay, so let's show that this expression, which we just evaluated on the board, is equal in phasor notation to one-half one phasor times a complex conjugate of the other. Okay, so if I write a phasor E, then that phasor represents the real function E plus E star over 2. And so I can apply that here and write this is function, the first function, this is the second function. Just actually substituting in for E1 and E2. The same way I did here. And then I multiply through term by term. The only difference is here I haven't explicitly said what the, func what the phasors are, whereas here I did. Then I get one term which looks like E1 times E2. And that has an oscillating frequency at some value that's greater than either of the uh, phasor frequencies. So if these are both at frequency omega, then their product is going to be at frequency 2 omega. And I have a term, let's see, that was from E1 times E2 and E1 star times E2 star. Then I have a term which comes from E1, E2 star, or E1 star, E2 star, right here. And that's going to have a frequency at omega minus omega. That's going to be 0. 
frequency. And so this term is not time dependent. I can pull it out of the, the uh, time average. This term oscillates rapidly in time, so it averages to 0. So this function was 1 half phasor E1 times phasor E2 complex conjugate. And that's equal to my product. So that's true for any two functions that you multiply together. If you can represent them as phasors, you can do the time average without having to do any integration. You just take 1 half of one phasor times the complex conjugate of the other. Okay, so that's useful in evaluating this term. Um, so let's do that. Let's say E1 is E01 times E to the i phi 1. That's the phasor E1. Phasor E2 has the same form. Then I can evaluate this time average as 1 half. And I can pick either phasor to be the real one and the other one to be the complex conjugate. So I'll let the first phasor be real. And the second phasor, I'll take the complex conjugate of. And I can write this as 1 half e naught 1, e naught 2. Remember, these were vectors, and they were the dot product. So I have to retain that dot product. And then e to the i phi 1 times e to the minus i phi 2 is e to the i phi 1 minus phi 2. I can write that as 1 half e naught 1 dot e naught 2. And when I take the real part of this, the real part of this is just cosine phi 1 minus phi 2. That's the phase difference between the two beams. We'll call that delta. I'm going to go back up to the top of the board.
And what I evaluated was this time average there. So when I plug in the result of that evaluation times this, the 1 half and the 2 cancel out. And I'll call the phase difference between the two waves delta. Now, if you recall, I1 was equal to 1 half epsilon naught c e naught 1 squared. And I2 is equal to 1 half epsilon naught c e naught 2 squared. So I can write I12 as twice the value of, see if I write E01 is proportional to the square root of I1, and E02 is proportional to the square root of I2. And E01 times E02 is proportional to the square root of I1 times I2. And then I have the cosine delta term. Um, that's if they're parallel. So the 2 came from the fact that this term didn't have the 1 half in it that these terms did. The square root of i1, i2 comes from the fact that these depended on e1 squared and e2 squared, and this depends on the product of e1 and e2. And then that left us with the cosine delta as the remaining factor there on the interference term. So this is the interference term. It's written in a form that depends on the irradiance of both interfering waves rather than the electric field because frequently we're given the irradiance or we measure the irradiance of interfering beams and then we want to express what their interference should look like and it depends on this phase difference between the beams which may be a function of space and time. Gregory? Okay, we'll see this in a second. We'll talk about coherence the second half of class. So I'll wait until we until I have the slides up to, to discuss that. Well, so if you work this out, yeah, they they cancel. So whatever units you measure I1 and I2 in, then when you take the product and then the square root. It retains those units. Okay, so um, the epsilon naught c, we have square root of epsilon naught c times square root of epsilon naught c. That gives us the epsilon naught c. 
OK, so a few general things we can say about this interference term. That should be a delta. The book uses delta. My notes use delta phi. I changed that this morning. The book that we used to use, that I used to use, used phi instead of delta. So um, that delta, should be delta, will be a function, can be a function of time and position. And when delta equals 0 or some integer multiple of 2 pi, then this term is a maximum. We call that constructive interference. So when that's a maximum, it adds to the background irradiance from each of the two individual fields. And then there will be destructive interference when this term is a minimum. This term can actually go negative, right? When delta is pi, or pi plus some integer multiple of 2 pi, then cosine of delta would be negative 1. And this would be negative. Now, you can never have negative irradiance. Irradiance is a power per area. So power is always its energy flow. It's, it's a positive quantity. Um, it could be, I guess you could define it as negative if energy is flowing the opposite direction as the direction of your area. But um, in optics, we never talk about a negative power or a negative irradiance. So on its own, this interference term doesn't have real physical meaning. But when we add it to the background irradiance from the two other fields, then if this is negative, it just reduces the overall irradiance. And so when cosine delta is minus 1, the sine changes from plus to minus, And the background irradiance gets reduced by this interference term. And so for delta anywhere between those two values, the total irradiance is somewhere between this max value and that min value. Okay, so if the two fields that are interfering have the same amplitude, then they'll completely destructively interfere when delta is pi or some integer multiple of 2 pi plus pi. And then the interference pattern that you might see, this is the interference pattern for a source located here and a source located here. And you can see at a point that's equidistant between them, those fields are adding up constructively. The two sources emit spherical waves in phase. And a point directly in between them or along a line that is equidistant from both sources Sources will add up constructively. And then these different hyperbolic surfaces here correspond to surfaces where the distance from one source to a point and the other source to the point is an integer multiple of um, an integer number of wavelengths different. So for example, along this surface here, delta corresponds to um, 4 pi. Along this surface, delta corresponds to 2 pi. Along this surface, delta corresponds to 0. This would be delta equals minus, say, 2 pi. Delta equals minus 4 pi. Um, And in this case, if the two sources had 
equal intensity beams or equal magnitude fields, then the points where they interfere destructively can be completely destructive. If we go back to our expression here, um, if this is completely destructive, if delta equals minus 1, then this is our expression for the minimum irradiance. And if I1 equals I2, then we have I1 plus I2 minus 2I1, I2. We can write this as uh, 2I minus 2I. We let I1 equal I2 equal I, which equals 0. Right, if I1 is not equal to I2, that won't be the case. Um, And the regions of destructive interference won't be completely destructive. And that's the case that's represented here. And so the, the contrast of this picture is much reduced from this one. So we can say the interference contrast, or we can say the fringe visibility is reduced. So these are high visibility fringes. These are low visibility fringes. These fringes have a visibility that we would define as 1. If this picture had no contrast at all, we'd define that as a visibility of 0. So how visible the fringes are can be measured from 0 to 1. And so if you, if you express that as the, the contrast being the difference from the maximum to the minimum intensity, from the maximum to the minimum, divided by the sum of the maximum and minimum, then that function will scale between 0 and 1 as you go from completely defined fringes to completely washed out fringes. Right, so in this example, I min is equal to 0. So you can forget about that term. The visibility is equal to 1. And if I min was the same as I max, then you wouldn't have visible fringes. And if they're the same, then the numerator is 0 the visibility becomes zero. Okay, so let's take a short break and then we'll talk about coherence and how coherence affects fringe visibility. So if you took that to be 0, why did you say R0? I was just leaving it in R. So 80 divided by? Negative 38. 80 divided by negative 38 is 2 point. Oh, it was, it was uh, then I had a factor of 10 that I was off. Then I moved the decimal over. OK, well, if even in an earlier version, I had it as 0. Then you need to exp exp you need to explain everything that you're doing mm -hmm. on the paper. 
because this is what this yeah, is your yeah. proof or this yeah. is your your solution. So um, usually, like a math error will only mm -hmm. count for one point. But then if I can't, like, yeah. the, yeah, I didn't see that constraint. Yeah, you should you should crossed off the RN and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, you need to state your constraints yeah. so that I can understand what you're solving, yeah. and it needs to be clear. Um, yeah, and we'll do that next time. Uh, I'll bring I'll bring a Michelson interferometer in. There's a lot of different ways to do it. The uh, the most effective. I mean, there's different methods for doing coarse alignment and fine alignment. So the coarse alignment, um, the way I like to do it is with a pinhole at the laser. So put a pinhole there. Um, it works best if you have a beam splitter and a photo detector there. And then you've got a beam splitter here. And it's an iterative process. But um, first you start with a reflected mirror. You start with this, and you tilt this until it appears to be going through the pinhole. And then you monitor the power on this photodiode, and you maximize it by tilting this. Okay. And then once you've done that, you know that this path is aligned. And then you do this path. Um, in practice, you could do either path first. But if you need to adjust the beam splitter at all, then you want to do that first before you measure the transmitted path. And then you do the same thing with the transmitted path. And once you've done that, you'll see fringes. And so you see a fringe pattern here. And if you see stripes, you're not aligned. And you need to tilt in the direction that the stripes are. If you see, right, so if you see this, you need to adjust vertically. This would be horizontal. And then if you see a bullseye, what that means is your path lengths aren't equal. And if you move one mirror back or forth, you can basically zoom in or zoom out in this bullseye. And when you're done, what you want to see, to be fully aligned both in angle and in path length, you want to see whatever your beam profile is, if it's a Gaussian beam, you want to see just uniform intensity across that beam. But if you touch the mirror or wiggle it, you want to see that intensity blink, flicker. OK, so let's get started again. And we have this expression for the interference term. And here I've written it in terms of our original form. I haven't written it in terms of our square root of i1, i2, cosine delta. Because that form assumed that these fields were parallel. And I want to relax that assumption and, and talk about when you get interference and when you don't. So we have two fields. This is a completely general expression. There's nothing assumed here other than the fact that there's two fields that can be measured independently. So from this expression, you can see that if these two fields are orthogonally polarized, 
what will that interference term equal? Zero. Right. If the dot product, if they're orthogonally polarized, the dot product is zero. Therefore, there's no interference term, there's no interference fringes. So you don't see interference fringes from orthogonally polarized light. What happens if they're not completely orthogonal, but they're not completely aligned either? So two vectors that are two electric field vectors that are, say, 45 degrees apart. What would you expect the interference fringes to look like? Um, well, let's say you see an uh, interference pattern. So you see some regions where they're in phase, some regions where they're out of phase. So you see these fringes. Yeah, it'll be partial. You can think of it as, you can think of, say, you can describe field E1 in terms of a component that's parallel to E2 and a component that's perpendicular to E2. The component that's parallel is going to produce interference and will produce fringes. The component that's perpendicular doesn't. And that just produces a broad background, so it reduces the fringe visibility. It's like taking a photograph of something and then just shining some light over your right onto your film and just reducing the, the uh, contrast of what you've recorded. Okay, so two parallel and coherent, we'll get to coherence in a minute, polarization states will produce visible fringes. Interference of two incoherent states will not produce visible fringes. So in terms of this expression, the way we can understand that is if the Waves are not coherent, even if they're parallel, so their dot product survives. This time average depends on cosine of delta, where delta is the phase difference between them. If they're incoherent, then they have, then the phase difference between them is going to vary randomly in time. So when you average that, a random variation, it will average to zero. And then incoherent light, this almost goes without saying, but incoherent light, if, the, if you consider orthogonal polarization states of natural light, it's always incoherent. Take incoherent light. And then you consider orthogonal polarization states. That itself is also incoherent. Okay. Those are called the Fresnel-Arago laws. And they describe when you see visible fringes and when you don't. So the polarization relationships are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. The coherence needs a little bit more explanation. So here's a picture of what a wave train might look like that has a coherence length of about two periods, or two wavelengths. So the idea is that, on average, you get about two sinusoidal oscillations before something disrupts the phase, and you get some phase jump. And that phase jump is random. And so here I've drawn, every two periods, a random phase jump, and then two more periods. In practice, the timing varies as well, and the coherence length describes the average time before a phase jump. Now, even if, so we would say this light has a coherence length of about two wavelengths. 
If you take that and you interfere it with another, if you interfere it with itself, so you take the light and let's say you split it with a beam splitter and then you recombine it. So for example, a Moxender interferometer. You take a light source, you split it, and you recombine it. You're essentially adding up two waves that have the same properties. And if they've traveled the same path length through the different arms of the interferometer, they'll be in phase. And so you'd be adding up two wave trains that look like this. And if you do that, then even though they're incoherent, or they're, they have a very short coherence length, they can still add up coherently. Meaning, for this region right here, where there's a wave train, that can add up in phase with this region down here. This region over here, where there's a nice smooth wave train, can add up constructively with this one and produce an increased amplitude field. And so you basically just, just split the beam, we recombined it, we get the original beam back. Right. So we start with the beam like this, we split it, so we have a smaller, smaller amplitude, and we recombine them, we reproduce a larger amplitude. If we compare that to what we'd get if the path lengths of these two arms were not the same, so one beam has traveled further than the other, and so we shift, say, the top wave to the right with respect to the bottom wave. And if the path length difference is greater than the coherence length, then the wave trains we're going to be adding up come from regions where there's different, where the phases are different. So these two wave trains, as I've drawn them, add up destructively. They're out of phase. Right? This is going to a peak when this is going to a valley. So they add up pretty destructively. Over in this region, they're even more destructive. The peaks and valleys are lined up even better. And then in this region over here, they happen to be pretty much constructive. They're in phase most of the time. So for certain regions of time, well, this doesn't have a wave train above it. Certain regions of time, they cancel out. And in other regions, they reinforce. And so what you'd expect due to the interference is light that's very bright, very dark, very bright, very dark, and essentially you'd be seeing constructive, destructive, constructive interference changing very rapidly. And you'd just see the average of all that. And so that would be essentially um, you wouldn't see interference. You'd average over all phases of the interference. Sometimes it's constructive, other times it's destructive, and you just see the average, which is the same as you'd get if there were no interference at all. If the path length difference is less than the coherence length, then it's equivalent to having coherent light. Okay, so whether light is coherent or incoherent depends on um, how much path length difference there is between the two beams, okay, assuming they come from the same source. So here's a little animation that shows that. Um, I'm going to pause this. 
and go through it manually here. Um, okay, so here's two wave trains. They have a coherence length. They come from the same source. So this, this, the same wave train was split and then recombined. And you can see the coherence length is about three wavelengths. And if the wave trains are, um, have traveled the same distance from when they're split to when they're recombined, then they'll add up essentially in phase, regardless of what the phase of the wave train is. And the phase changes as a function of time. They'll both add up in phase all the time. And we'll get some electric field oscillation that looks like this, which is constructive interference. We would observe this as a bright, bright beam. Let me go back a ways. So let me move this blue beam back by a distance that's greater than the coherence length. Now, this blue wave is adding up with this red one. They're pretty much in phase. So they produce constructive interference. But then over here, this is out of phase with that one. So they add destructively. And if I'm observing this purple sum, it's bright, it's dark, it's bright. It's averaging out to be essentially a constant, constant intensity that's the same as the individual sum of either. And somewhere where they're not quite they haven't, there is some path length difference between them, but it's less than the coherence length. Then we'd say they're partially coherent. You can see what happens is there's regions like this that come from the same wave train that are interfering that are going to add up constructively. But then one beam has, when there has a phase change here, the other beam doesn't have the phase change until a little bit later. So for this region, there's essentially two different phases for the beams. And they have an interference that has no correlation to what the interference pattern looked like over here. So there's these little gaps over here that have no particular correlation to what the rest of the wave is doing rest of the sum is doing. And so this part, this part, and this part are adding up coherently to produce interference. And then these parts are adding up incoherently to produce just background light. So the fringe visibility would be reduced. And so at the moment in the diagram, the parts that are adding up coherently are producing constructive interference. And if I skip forward, there they're adding up to produce destructive interference. There they're adding up constructive interference again, destructive. And you can see that it's never totally destructive because there's always these little regions that aren't adding up coherently and produce just some background light. So think of your detector as taking the average of this, this sum field. 
can see there's only one point in time where that sum field is entirely coherent across the entire function. Ankit? One, two, three. Yeah, it seems like three to me. Yeah. Here's an example where the coherence length is shorter. You can see there would be just one brief moment in time in this movie where the interference field, or the sum field, is adding up constructively everywhere. So at this moment in time, there's not a sinusoidal, you wouldn't describe that by a, a nice smooth sinusoidal wave. Um, but whatever the amplitude is at any point, at least over the very short time scale, it's going to sinusoidally vary. So just pick a point on that purple curve, and as I advance a few frames, you'll see it's going to go from a max to a minimum and back. And then before it goes through one full cycle, the coherence is lost. Right, and every point is just doing its sort of own thing. So if you were to average this purple curve, then you wouldn't see any coherence effect from the, in, from the uh, interference. OK, so that was temporal coherence. You take a beam, you split it, you delay one path with respect to the other. It's essentially shifting in space um, the beam with respect to itself. We can talk about the coherence length. There's also, also something called spatial coherence of a wavefront, which is important to understand. If you have a source of light, say over here at point A, and it produces some wavefront over here, if you can pick two points on the wavefront and say that they have a phase that's the same, which you should have for a wavefront. Um, if the phase is the same at two points on a wavefront, then you can talk about how those two points would interfere if you could somehow bring them together. One way of bringing them together is Young's double slit. If you consider the wavefront produced by point A at the plane of this aperture, and there's two slits in that mask, you can think of the light from point A illuminating these two points. You can think of these as secondary sources of Huygens wavelets. And the phase of those sources is given by whatever the phase of the wavefront is at those two points. And you can think of it as two sources of light that can interfere at point B. And as long as there's a constant phase relationship between points in this slit and in this slit on the wavefront from A, then you can get interference at point B. But if there is no phase relationship between those points, if the phase varies randomly as you move across this, uh, this mask, then there's no way to say 
how those two points would interfere at point B. Okay, so everyone's seen Young's double slit, I'm guessing. You've probably seen this in physics 52 or equivalent. If you take a light bulb and then you take a double slit and a screen over here, does anyone want to guess what you'd see? You'd see an intensity pattern that looks kind of like this. You'd essentially have light going through both slits and shining on your, your uh, screen, and there'd be no interference between them. The reason is a light bulb is an extended source. It's got a filament that has some size to it. And the light being emitted from this part of the filament has no phase relationship with the light being emitted from that part of the filament. Right? It's just made up of atoms and molecules that are vibrating. And the phase of vibration of the ones at the bottom have nothing to do with the phase of vibrations of the ones at the top. And they both, all parts of the filament are emitting rays. And so the rays at this point and the rays at that point um, are the sum of the light from all parts of the filament. And because there's a different path length from here to here and from here to here, there's a different phase for these two fields. Because it's integrated, because it's a sum over uh, all possible phases or all sources that produce light that ends up here, over the entire filament, um, when you change the path, you change the phase in a very chaotic way. So let's contrast that to what you'd have if you put in a single slit first. In that case, you see interference fringes. And the reason is you may have light coming from all different parts of the filament. And as you move along this plane, the relative sum, or the relative uh, phase of the different parts of the filament add up in a rather chaotic way produce essentially a randomly varying phase across this wavefront. At this one point where the light gets through, whatever the phase is is what the phase is. So there's some phase for the light at that point, and it acts like a point source. It produces nice spherical wavefronts where the phase is constant across any of these wavefronts. And so along this surface, there's a nice, smoothly varying phase. And if everything is centered, the phase of the light at these two points is equal. If, if this slit is not centered on this double slit, these phases may not be equal, but they'll differ by a constant amount that's not changing in time. And so we say that the light incident over here 
has spatial coherence. You can pick two points that are spatially separated and say something about the relative phase of those two points. You can't do that over here. Um, you can think of this like if you're in a cocktail party, there's a lot of ambiance, and you ask what the sound is for someone standing on one side of the room versus on the other side of the room, they're going to hear basically completely different sounds. Right? But if you're listening to music, then there's a, they're basically going to hear the same thing. Right? Music has a nice, smoothly varying phase, essentially fixed frequencies, whereas ambiance is white noise. There's essentially no phase relationship. There's uh, no coherence to the phase relationship as you change position. OK, so let's consider Young's double slit, a case where we have um, two point sources that have a constant phase relationship. And we'll assume that they have the same phase. And they produce waves that interfere over here on a, on a screen or a detector. So we can draw a ray diagram for what happens for light coming from these two slits that reaches a point B over here. We don't really need to worry about what happens on the left side of this diagram. So if the slit has a width D, or the slit separation has a width D, and we call this detector plane a distance L away from our slit, and describe the height of point B as x, then we can do a little bit of geometry. First, we can describe the angle that point B makes with respect to the optical axis as theta. That angle is the same as the angle of the uh, the line that we can draw. Well, what we want to do here is um, divide the distance from the further slit to point B into two parts. One part has the same length as the distance to the near slit. And so if I draw a line from the near slit that is perpendicular to this line, then I've got an isosceles triangle here. So this length will be the same as that length. Then this angle between that, the base of that triangle and the plane of the slit is the same as this angle theta. So clearly, as theta goes to 0, this base becomes parallel to the, the slit separation. And as theta would go to 90 degrees, this triangle would have to turn to 90 degrees. So we can say that the slit separation is d. This angle here is theta. This distance right here is the extra distance the light has to travel in one path relative to the other. And so the interference condition requires that we know delta. Delta is the phase difference between the two beams. Well, the phase difference is due to the phase acquired by light traveling this path. 
that path length is d sine theta. What's the phase acquired traveling a distance of d sine theta? How do you convert a physical length into a, a phase? Multiply by k. So k d sine theta, or d sine theta times 2 pi over lambda. So delta is k, 2 pi over lambda, times d sine theta. And any time where delta is equal to 0, or some integer multiple of 2 pi, so 2m pi, where m is an integer, then you'll get constructive interference. And if we want, we can express um, the interference condition not as a function of theta, but as a function of the height above the optical axis. So x over L is equal to theta for small angles. So if I replace theta with x over L, then I can get this condition for when there's a bright fringe. This is a D, and that's an X. That's not a differential. That D is the separation of the slit. So when X satisfies this condition, there will be constructive interference. We see that for M equals 0, X has to equal 0. And so on the optical axis, there's a bright fringe. And then every at the next bright fringe, x is increased enough so that this additional path length is one wavelength. When it gets to the second bright fringe, this additional path length is two wavelengths, and so on. And then in between those, there's dark fringes. So dark fringes occur when delta is equal to pi, pi, or some integer multiple of 2 pi plus pi. So there's the condition for the dark fringes in between. OK, so that's where we'll end up today. Um, remember, we have a test next Tuesday. And the uh, practice, or the last midterm, is available online. You can check that out. <coughs>